listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Good morning again. My name is Clint. So glad each and every one of you have joined us. I need to up front give you a heads up. Apologize, you may hear some slurping of some water in the microphone. I'm fighting off a little bit of a head cold. Uh, somebody, first service, said either Clint is sick or he fought with his wife all the way to church this morning. Uh, not that that doesn't ever happen. I'm happy to say in this instance, though, uh, it is the former. And so I'm going to keep drinking water. Hopefully, my voice won't give out. Uh, but y'all go ahead and turn to John. John chapter 5. We're continuing our uh, series in the book of John. And this passage, really in a lot of ways, is about decision. It's about the decision you make. I did some research this week. I found that the average person, you and me, if we live to the age of 70, will make 1,788,500 decisions in our lifetime. Now, if you think about it, most of those are pretty inconsequential. Paper or plastic, Coke or Dr. Pepper, would you like fries with that? That kind of stuff. But there's a few, just a handful of those 1.7 million decisions that really make a huge impact on our life. I thought about one of those decisions for me. I thought about the time that I proposed to Melissa and asked her to marry me. We've got a picture of that day. If y'all are curious who that dude is with my wife, y'all, that's me. Most of you have never seen me without a beard. Uh, That was probably the last time I didn't have a beard was way back then. Uh, so there we are. I proposed, uh, it was over Christmas back in Louisiana, where both our families are, and uh, we had gone out four-wheeler riding, the whole family gone out four-wheeler riding, that's how you celebrate Christmas in Louisiana, I don't know if y'all knew that. You go four-wheeler riding, and then I slipped away, put on that snazzy tux, and uh, asked her to marry me. And it, if, those of you who have done it, you know, uh, it is fun, it is exciting, and it is nerve-wracking, and it's scary, because I knew when I get down on that knee, it's time for decision. Yes or no. My life was going to change one way or the other. I knew that. In that scenario, you can't pass. Pass is not an option in that scenario. <laughs> pass means no, really. So I knew this was going to be a decision time. In our passage today, Jesus, in a similar way, is forcing a decision. But instead of dropping to a knee, how he's going to do it is he's going to tell us exactly who he is. He's going to tell the Pharisees listening, here's exactly who I am. See, we read last week, and we said last week that Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, you know, they got all hot and bothered about that. And they said, you're a Pharisee breaker. He said, no, 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 no. I'm not a Pharisee breaker. I'm Lord of the Sabbath, which means I'm Lord. I am God. And when a man stands in front of you and tells you that he is God, you've got a decision to make. There's no pass, and it is the most important of that 1.7 million decisions you're going to make, because he's going to tell us this morning that how you make this decision depends either judgment or life. So let's turn our Bibles, John 5, we'll start in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For, whatever the, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater work than these will he show him, 
so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes, him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So here Jesus is making a bunch of claims, claims about who he is, about his identity, and about what he can do, his authority. And regarding his identity, he makes one big, giant, huge claim. And it's simply this, I am God. And in this, these verses, he's trying to find a bunch of different ways to paint the picture for us that he is God. It's this picture of unity, unity between him and the Father, so much so that they are equal and they are completely and totally unified. You cannot have one without the other. So in verse 19, we see a unity of action. It says, we are acting in complete unison together. I cannot say or do anything that God would not say or do. We act alike, guess why? Because we are alike. We act the same, guess why? Because we are the same. So you may picture a mirror image, looking at yourself in the mirror, and you move your right hand, and whatever your right hand does, that mirror image does. Whatever your left hand does, that mirror image does. That's the unity of action we have between the Father and the Son. In verse 20, says there's a unity of knowledge. This is really interesting because he says it's based on a relationship based on love with one another. He says, the Father loves me, and so he reveals everything to me. There's nothing the Father knows that I don't know. Verse 30, skip down there, we see a unity of will. The Father and the Son, we want the same things. I want what the Father wants, he wants what I want. And maybe most interesting of all, in verse 23, we see a unity of relationship. Not just their relationship with one another, but your relationship to them. He says, whatever you make of me, that's what you make of God. Whatever you make of God the Father, that's what you make of me. There's a unity there. And so to worship me is to worship the Father. To worship the Father is to worship the Son, to worship me. Both of us are worthy of the same honor. We are both worthy of worship. And that's a big claim. Because remember, he's talking to a group of Pharisees. Those Pharisees knew that the only, the only one person is worthy of worship and honor, and that's God. They would have known, Isaiah 48, 11. God says, I'm a jealous God, and I will not, under no circumstances, will I give my glory to another. And Jesus says, but I am him. I am God, and I'm worthy of that glory. So if you love God, you love me. If you love me, you love God. To trust God is to trust me. It cannot be separated. I am God. And because I'm God, he says, he can do two things. It's two things the Pharisees would have known only God can do. Here's the first one. 
Because I'm God, I can give life. Only God can give life. So the Pharisees would have known. Genesis 1, God is the creator, ex nihilo, out of nothing. There is darkness, there is void, there is nothing, and God speaks. And something comes out of nothing. Only God can do that. And so they would have known. Deuteronomy 32, God says, I am God, there is no other, because only I can give life. But you may remember, we studied John 1. John 1 is par- paralleling Genesis 1, the creation. And John 1 says, all things were made through Jesus. In fact, without Jesus, nothing was made. So Jesus is saying, I created, I brought life, I am God. But here's what's interesting. Repeatedly in this passage, he talks about not just life coming at first, life out of nothing. He talks about life that overcomes death, life after death. And there's a future aspect to it. So verse 28 and 29, y'all, he says there's going to be a day everyone who has ever died will be raised again, raised to new life. Everyone is going to happen in the future. But also there's a sense where he says, you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait for life. I'm giving out life right now. And so in verse 21, he talks about the Father and the Son going and raising the dead and giving life to the dead. Those verbs are the present, active, indicative. That's just nerd language for it means it's present and ongoing. He's doing it now and at all times in the future. So he's saying the Father and the Son are continually going around to the dead and giving them life. That's why I can say in verse 25, there's a time coming... There's a time coming where I will give life to the dead, and in another sense, is now here. There's a sense where it's here now. There's a sense, what this means is there's a sense that right now you can be dead, even though you are alive, and Jesus can give you life. That's why throughout the scripture, death, men and women, is a picture of the state we live in. It is a picture of our sin and our separation from him. And so you may look out in the world and see all kind of brokenness, injustice, tragedy, pain, suffering. And the Bible says we look all around this, and what do we see? That's death. It's also a symbol for the brokenness in you. The Bible says you are dead in your sin. That's why, even though you have this picture of yourself, the good, best version of yourself that you could be, you can't quite attain that. Even though often, over and over again, you know what's good and what you should do, you find yourself not doing it. You're dead in your sin. And so in verse 24, he gives an unbelievable promise. He says, by believing in me and hearing my voice, you can pass right now from death to life. Because I'm God, I can heal your brokenness. I can forgive and free you from your sin. That's what he's saying. But y'all, there's a real irony in verse 24. There's an irony in who he says is going to hear his voice. He says the dead will hear his voice. Well, how's a dead man going to hear somebody? How does that work? Well, you might as well ask, how can a lame man walk? That's what Jesus just did at the beginning of chapter 5. Might as well ask, how can the dead rise from the grave, which he's going to do with Lazarus in chapter 11? That's the whole point. Only God can do that. You know, I was remembering this week, several years ago, uh, my stepmother, she was, it was a normal day, normal morning. Uh, her name was Judy, and Judy was at home doing some work around the house. 
and an aneurysm ruptured in her brain. And the doctor said she was probably brain dead even before she hit the floor. It was that fast. And so we did what you do, rushed home back to Louisiana. Uh, we ended up spending the next eight days in the hospital um, while she was on life support before she finally passed away. You know, all those days in the hospital, there were so many people who came and helped us in so many ways. There were doctors, uh, the best doctors in the world with the best technology, had, had studied the most, knew more than anybody else knew. There were other friends and family, people from church who brought us food, brought us comfort, uh, provided for us in every way that they could manage. But you know what? There's one thing no one could do, the thing we wanted most. No one could bring us life. Didn't matter how meaning they were, well-meaning they were, didn't matter how smart they were, didn't matter how many times they went to church, it didn't matter any of that. Because only God can bring life after death. That's his whole point right here. All you Pharisees listening to me can't do it. Everyone in the crowd can't do it. And if I'm not God, I can't do it. So he brings life, even to the dead. The second thing he tells us he does is he judges. He judges. Jesus is saying, you will face a judge, and it's going to be me. And I will decide your eternal fate, me. And again, this is another thing the Pharisees would have known. Only God is qualified to do that. Why? Because only God created, and only God is good and righteous and holy. So only he can judge. And Jesus is claiming that. You know, I think if we're honest, man, this is authority, this is a picture of God that we really like and we really don't like all at the same time, right? We really like in the sense that we want justice. When we hear about people like Judy or other friends or loved ones who died too soon, we, we yearn and we want someone to step in and end all the suffering and the pain, and make things right. And when we see the wicked prosper, while the innocent seem to only have more and more hurdles, we want someone to stop it. We want someone to do something about all the evil out there. And a lot of times we cry out to God to do that. We want justice. But you know what? We don't want to have to face the judge, do we? We don't. We want, we want God to deal with all the evil out there, but we don't want him to deal with the evil in here. We don't want to have to face the judge. And so we often think, you know, people like Hitler, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, all those evils, thieves and murderers out there, yeah, they should all have to face the judge. And certainly all those people that hurt me and harmed me for all the wrong they're doing, they should have to face the judge. But surely I don't have to face the judge, right? You know what we're like? We just got done, I just got done coaching my son's six-year-old soccer team, the Scorpions. The name is way more intimidating than we actually were. There we are. Looks like a bunch of scorpions, huh? And so I got to help coach that team, and it was a lot of fun. And I got to tell you guys, we, could, we had practice every Friday afternoon. And, y'all, every Friday afternoon, I was awesome at soccer. I mean, I was the man. We would play the whole team against me, and they would try to score. Y'all, they couldn't do it. Those little kids, they'd run up there trying to kick the ball, and I'd just run up, man, I'd just jack that ball way down the field. They'd have to run back and go get it. They couldn't score on me. And then we'd play this game where I had the ball, and they had to all try to get it from me, man, and I'd do the thing. And just, they couldn't get the ball from me, no matter how hard they try. I was the man at soccer. And so you know what? If the only picture you had of what, so- what it looked like to be good at soccer was the Scorpions soccer practice, if that's all you had ever seen, all you watched, you would think... I was the best soccer player that ever lived. And it wasn't even close. 
But if you compare me to the real standard, people who are elite, the best of all time, Pele, Messi, these guys, I'm a chump, guys. I got nothing. This is what we do so often when we try to figure out how is God going to judge us. You ask any person in the world, go to almost any person in the world and ask them, hey, do you think you're going to get to go to heaven? And almost everyone will say, yes. Why? Because I'm way better than, worst case scenario, I've never killed anyone. I've never done this. I've never done that. I'm not Hitler. That's like the big defense, right? Compared to the worst case scenario, I'm the man. I'm nothing compared to them. But y'all, that's not the standard. The standard is the righteous, holy God. So you want to compare yourself to something? Compare yourself to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, hey, that's great that you've never committed adultery. That's awesome. Good job. Way to go. But I'm telling you, if you've ever lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. Hey, that's great. You've never murdered anyone. Way to go. But I'm telling you, if you ever had anger towards your brother, you have murder in your heart. That's great that you love your friends. Way to go. But you know what? Everyone does that. If you want to be a loving person, you have to love your enemies as well. Man, you start comparing yourself to that standard, and it is humbling. The reason for that is to see the perfect holiness and righteousness of God is necessarily to be humbled. Because when we compare ourselves to that standard, we know we don't measure up. And so your, your knees ought to start knocking together when he says in verse 29, I will judge you by your deeds. My deeds? What? My actions? I thought it was what was in my heart that mattered. Well, exactly. You know how we know what's in your heart? You know how you reveal what's in your heart? By your actions. This, this is the teaching throughout Scripture, is your actions cannot save you. Your actions do not give you life or death. All your actions do is reveal what's in your heart. And so the picture we get throughout Scripture is a tree. You, know, you look at tree, and you see that it has fruit. And so you can picture an apple tree, and there's some great healthy apples on there. Do those apples give that tree life? No. The apples prove that the tree is alive. And that's what the scriptures say about our actions. They prove and they show and they reveal what is in our hearts. And so Jesus is saying, because I'm God, I created you. I set the righteous standard. And so one day I'm going to look at your deeds and they will tell me what is in your heart. I'm going to deal with the evil out there and the evil in here. And only I can do it because I'm God. So when a man is standing in front of you, telling you, I am God, and I can either give you life or I will judge you, it's decision time, right? You've got to decide what you're going to do with this man. And you know, often, every once in a while, you hear somebody say, hey, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, if that's true, y'all, somebody ought to tell the Pharisees. They are absolutely convinced that this is what he is saying. In fact, this is the moment where they go from man, this guy's a little pest that we need to deal with. Maybe we can shoot him out of town. They go from that to, we have to kill him. We have to kill him because he is blaspheming, claiming to be God. So here's what Jesus does next. He says, okay, tell you what, before you make the decision, let's have a little bit of a trial. Let's all, we're all going to go on the Judge Judy show a little bit, okay? And I'm going to call some witnesses. And here's the deal. I'm not going to call my witnesses. I'm going to call your witnesses. I'm going to call your witnesses, the people that you would call, and we'll see what they say about me. So let's pick it up in verse 
uh, 31. He says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. What's he saying there? Is he saying, hey, what I said isn't true? I'm lying to you? No. He's referencing the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19 said, this is how they would figure out legal cases. For a testimony to be counted as true, ruled true, you had to have the corroboration of two to three witnesses. If those two or three witnesses came forward, said the same thing you said, then there you go. The verdict was in your favor. But here's what Jesus does. He ups the ante. He says, your law says, I need two or three witnesses. I'm going to do you better. I'm going to bring five. So Jesus is going to call five witnesses. The, verse is in, the first is in verse 33 through 35. John the Baptist says, John came and even says, you rejoiced in John for a little while. So you need to know by now, John was famous. Every Jew knew who John was. And for the first part of his ministry, the Pharisees loved him. Why? Well, he was telling all those sinners out there to repent and to return to God. They thought, that's pretty great. Yeah, tell all the sinners out there to repent. And they knew their prophecy. They knew that prophecy said a forerunner would come before the Messiah. And after that, the Messiah would come. And they thought that's great because the Messiah is going to kick the Romans out. And guess what happens? After the Romans leave, guess who's the most important, the most privileged, the most respected, the most powerful? them. And so they thought that was awesome. Great. This John the Baptist, he's going to tell us who Messiah is. Messiah is going to come. We're going to be in power. All those evil Romans out of here. And they liked him until he looked at Jesus and he pointed at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that was the Messiah they didn't want. So they believed John the Baptist's witness until they didn't like it. So let's call the next witness. Verse 36, he talks about his works. These are his miracles or his signs. He had just healed a lame man. And the the Pharisees knew that according to scriptures, these miracles and signs were supposed to be, they are supposed to serve a very specific purpose. They were meant to authenticate the message and the messenger. They were one of the ways they were witness to the fact that this is the Messiah. Now, many people, like us, we can do this, tended to make the miracles the main show. Hey, Jesus, we just, want, we just want you to do this or that for us, or we just want you to put on a show. And Jesus is going to deal with those people in the next chapter. But the Pharisees, they knew Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. It says that when the Messiah will come, he will heal the lame. He'd just done it. He'll give sight to the blind. He will give hearing to the deaf. To the deaf. So to the Jews, these miracles... We're supposed to serve as witnesses, saying, look, I told you it was going to happen. This is that Messiah. And you think about it, that's why they call it a sign. I've never seen a sign point to itself. What does a sign do? It points to something else, something greater. And that's how these miracles were serving. To the extent that, coming up in chapter 11, part of what Jesus is doing here, guys, is he's preparing us for what's coming in chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So what does that do? That is a miracle. That is a sign that proves what the claim that Jesus is making here, that I have the power of life over death. And so they're going to see that. You know what they're going to do? They're going to say, okay, not only do we have to kill Jesus, now we also have to kill Lazarus. I'm sure he was real intimidated by that. He's like, I've already died. What are you going to do to me? They wouldn't listen to the witness. They rejected it. 
Call the next witness. Verse 39. It says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Scriptures. This is the witness that the Pharisees should have trusted most. And remember, y'all, Jesus, he's not speaking here to a bunch of secularists, a bunch of liberals. These are card-carrying fundamentalists who never left home without their Bibles. They had memorized more of Scripture than all of us combined, probably exponentially. And Jesus is pointing out, despite all this Scripture that you know, you've missed me. And it all points to me. This is what Jesus said in Luke 24. He's on the road to Emmaus talking to some guys who are bummed that the Messiah had died, didn't know he had risen yet, and that they were talking to him. And it says, Luke says that he opened the Scriptures and he showed them how all the law, all the prophets pointed to him. It was all fulfilled in him. It was like, y'all, it was like God had given the Pharisees just a simple connect-the-dots book. You know, all you got to do, one to two to three to four. Here's where the Messiah will be born. Here's what he will say. Here's what he will do. Here's who will come before him. And yet they still missed it. I love what the Jesus Storybook Bible says. Talking about the whole of Scripture, it says, every story whispers his name. You know what this means? This means you can read the Bible and be blind at the same time. It means you can know a lot of things and not know him at all. You know, we all know people, it's unfortunate, but probably each and every one of you know someone like this who has a lot of knowledge, and that knowledge has only served to puff them up. It has not brought them closer to God. It has not made them more Christ-like. Instead, it makes them prideful, arrogant, mean, and full of themselves because they've missed the forest for the trees. I love what Martin Luther said, that one of the greatest studiers of Scripture ever, but he didn't miss it. He says, I may, of course, become a learned man, and by reading and studying Scripture, and may preach what I have acquired. Yet all this would do me no good whatsoever. For if I do not know and do not find the Christ, neither do I find salvation and life eternal. In fact, I actually find bitter death. For our good God has decreed that no other name is given among men, whereby they may be saved except the name of Jesus. The witness of the Scripture testifies clearly over and over about who Jesus is. They ignored it. They got one final witness. Verse 45 through 47, Moses. He points out Moses. This to them was the greatest human being to ever live, the friend of God, the man who led them out of Egypt and into the promised land. He says, guys, Moses told you about me, and he did, Deuteronomy 18. Moses says, another one will come who is greater than I. He says, Moses taught you. He taught you about the law. He gave you Exodus, the book of the law. Here's the standard. He gave you the standard. But the scriptures don't end there. What comes after Exodus? Leviticus. What's the picture of Leviticus? Guys, here's the standard, and you're not going to be able to meet it. And so you need someone to die in your place and pay your penalty. That's the whole picture of the book of Leviticus that Moses gave them. He's saying, you're ignoring the teaching of Moses. You still think you can meet the standard. 
If you're ignoring the teaching of Moses, how are you, are you going to listen to me? So, John the Baptist, miraculous signs. I think I missed one. The audible voice of God. Three times God spoke uh, to Jesus at his baptism, at his transfiguration, and then in John 12 at the triumphant entry. The voice of God spoke. The scriptures and Moses. The Pharisees knew all of those. So how is it, guys, how is it the Pharisees could be so intimately familiar with all five of those witnesses yet completely reject Jesus? Well, something's fairly obvious. It's fairly obvious they did not have an information problem. They had a heart problem. They had to stop doing the very same thing that you and I have to stop doing if we're going to get life from Jesus. And it's simply this. Stop building your resume. Stop building your resume before God. He tells us in verse 42 why the Pharisees missed it. He says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? See, he's saying they wanted to be important based on their own name based on their own resume. And so they wanted to go around and be able to hand out the resume with their big name on top, hand it out to people, and have people applaud them and pat them on the back and talk about how great they were. That's what he says in verse 39. Even your study of Scripture is just about patting your resume. And this is what they did when they lost the first temple and uh, they couldn't uh, come to the temple to do all the religious acts and kind of earn favor from God that way. They began teaching Okay, and we need a substitute for that, so we'll just make it the study of Scripture. And so, man, if you can study Scripture more and better than everyone else, that's your act of righteousness, and that will earn God's favor. And so when Jesus comes, somehow they had gotten to a place where instead of reading Scripture to know God, they just used Scripture to puff themselves up, to get glory from one another, to pad their resume. And you can do the exact same You can use religious tools all day long to give yourself authority, give yourself importance, give yourself praise, and pad your resume. And it doesn't even have to be religious stuff. You can do it with anything else, anything you choose, your accomplishments, your niceness, your family, a few good deeds sprinkled here here and there. Whatever it is you do to strive to be the best version of yourself. And here's the danger. Here's what the Bible says about that. The Bible says that when you do that, your ego, your vanity, are like a blindfold that you put on. And so although you can read the Scripture, you are blind to what God is telling you in His Word. Although you can hear just fine, you are deaf to God calling you from death to life. You know what we're blind to? Here's what all of us are so often blind to. We are blind to all the things we don't put on our resume. All the things that we hope we can leave off our resume. You know, I was at our tailgate Friday night and watching the football game, and it reminded me a little bit of when I used to play football in high school. You know, we had a saying back then, because we would film the game, you'd play the game on Friday, you'd come on on Saturday, and you'd watch a tape of the game, of everything that happened. And so we had a saying, the eye and the sky don't lie. And so it doesn't matter how well you thought you did, 
It doesn't matter how many good plays you make. If the previous play was a good play, on that play, the honest guy don't lie. It is going to tell the truth about how you performed and what you did. I'll never forget one time. We were in a game, and I was a defensive end. I was on the very end. And I just knew. I knew from the formation they were in, I knew what they were going to run. They were going to run a toss sweep my way, and that running back was going to try to beat me around the corner. And I was like, this ain't happening. Not on my watch. So, y'all, even before the snap of the ball, I didn't get blocked. Nobody touched me. I took off running as fast as I could for that sideline, saying he's not going to get around me. Well, y'all, I had roughly the same athletic prowess then that I do now, so you know what happened. Right around me. I mean, like I wasn't even there. And I remember, I remember as I'm running as fast as I can, straying as hard as I can, I'm diving as hard as I can. I remember thinking, this is going to look really bad on film tomorrow. But sure enough, we get there on Saturday. I'm like, here it comes. Here comes the play. We should, the coach shows it once and then doesn't say anything to me. They rewind it. He shows it again two times. He doesn't say anything to me. I'm like, I cannot believe it. I'm going to get away with this. Because I did have some other good plays that game. And we did win the game. So it's not that big a deal. Just as we're getting ready to move on, the defensive coach says, Coach, run that back one more time. They run it in slow-mo. The coach says, hey, everybody watch Clint on this play, the whole team. And they just got to laughing. Because there it was, plain as day, despite my best efforts. Nobody else's fault. Nobody got in my way. I didn't have what it took. The eye in the sky didn't lie. I wasn't good enough. I couldn't fool the tape, and you and I can't fool God. He doesn't see just our resume. He doesn't see just the, the best parts of ourselves. He sees it all. He sees everything. I was convicted by what Chuck Swindoll says. He says, sadly, the road to hell is jammed with Bible-toting, cross-wearing, him singing, good doing, church going, men and women who expect to be rewarded handsomely for their efforts. They trust in their own goodness, which is pride, rather than humbly admit their moral poverty and receive heaven as a gift. Men and women, stop building your resume. It's not earning you anything. Put it away. In fact, it'll actually blind you. So here's what you do instead. Here's what Jesus is calling to do. Here's why it's forcing this decision. Start believing Jesus. Y'all, this is the point of the whole book of John. This is going to be the point of every sermon in the series. Start believing Jesus. And a couple things we need to know about that. When he says believe Jesus, he means believe all that Jesus has said about himself. You cannot read this passage and think, oh, Jesus was just a nice guy. Or Jesus was just a good teacher, so I'm going to kind of take his life advice. No, no, no. Guys, good teachers don't claim to be God. Good teachers don't claim to be able to raise the dead. Good teachers don't claim to be able to judge you at the end of your life. Like C.S. Lewis said, you've got a decision to make and you've got three options. Either he's a liar, meaning he knows he's not God, but he's running some kind of con. Or he's a lunatic. He thinks he's God and he's not. He's just crazy. Or he's a Lord. He's God. He's all that he says that he is. And here's the second thing you need to know about belief. Belief is not just about information. Think about it. Who had the most information in this whole scene? The Pharisees. And y'all, the more information they got did not make them believe anymore. The more he revealed himself, the more explicit he was, it only made them hate him more. See, for some of you today, 
It's so easy to think that your issue is you don't know enough. You need to experience a little more of Jesus. You need to know a little bit more of Jesus. If I could just get this one little question answered. But some of us, you know plenty of facts. It's not about the facts that you haven't trusted and submitted to him. That's what belief is in Scripture. Belief is about trust in his work and submission to him. So here's what belief means. Here's what it looks like. When you come before God, you don't turn in a resume. When you come before God, you turn in repentance. That's what belief looks like. To repent is to come to Him for life instead of trying to earn it on your own and be good enough on your own. You admit, I'm this guy, don't lie. I don't have what it takes. I'm not good enough. And here's what happens when you do that. This is what's amazing. This is what happens when you do that. Jesus hands you a new resume. The name, big name on the top of that resume, guess what? It's not yours. It's His you get to turn it in. This is what the Bible means when it says that his righteousness is credited to you because of his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. All your sins can be forgiven, and you get his righteousness. You get his resume. So that's the decision this morning. Will you believe in him? All that he said about himself. Will you put your trust in him and submit to him? And if you will, guess what? There's a promise. We saw it in verse 24, which says, anyone who believes in me, him who has sinned has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he passes from life, from death to life. And remember, I told you this purpose of the whole book. John tells us here is why I'm writing this to you. Here's why you need to know this. John 20, 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, what happens? You may have life in his name. So what's the promise? When you believe in him, you get life in his name. You know, when my stepmom, Judy, when she passed away, Caleb was only about four months old. He was just a little newborn baby. And so he was there with us in the hospital all those days. And there was a big waiting room there where we would all wake. And day after day, time after time, I kept seeing the same scene unfold in front of me. What would happen was somebody would go back in the hospital room to sit with Judy for a little while, and they'd come back in the waiting room, and as soon as they were in that waiting room, they'd walk up to me and Melissa, and they would say, can I hold him? Can I hold your son? They would take little baby Caleb, and they would pull him close. Ma, why did everyone do that? I think it's because when we face death, we yearn for new life. We were created for life. And so we desperately look for some sort of hope outside just the brokenness and death we see around us. So person after person, they would go from this room full of death, pull new life close to them. And that's the offer on the table for you this morning. Jesus says you can have new life, not just death, if you'll believe in him. So you know why Jesus is being so clear about who he is? You know why he's pushing the envelope and being so explicit that he is God? It's because he wants to offer you new life. That's why I got on my knee with Melissa that day, because I wanted her to be my wife. I wanted her to say yes. I knew maybe she would say no. That's why Jesus is telling you about himself. That's why he's revealing himself this morning. He wants to offer you new life. So if you've never done that this morning, we would love to speak with you after the service. Today could be the day you put your faith in him and you submit to him. But if you have put your faith in him in the past, may we live this week 
with a renewed commitment, not to build our own resume, not to pat our own resume, not to make it all about ourselves, but to believe all that Jesus says about himself. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.